0: G'day guys and welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm Mitch Stocker and I'm here to introduce this week's episode. I've got a cracking episode for you. I'm talking with my doctor, Team EF Education First Team Doctor, Dr. Kevin Sprouse. I've actually done an episode with him last year, back in October. If you haven't heard that episode, get across and have a listen to that one because it's a great episode to explain what the day-to-day job is of a professional team doctor This week's episode is a little bit more specific. We're going to focus on Grand Tours and we're going to focus on the Giro. On the eve of the Giro, I thought, great, let's just see what it's like for a team doctor on a Grand Tour. And that's when I think these guys come into their own. That's when their job becomes really important. When the guys are getting sick, when the wheels are falling off, when they've got crashes in the first week and they've got to get through a Grand Tour, how do they keep a team rolling on? How do they keep eight guys fresh, ready to go every single day? There's a lot in there, so sit back and enjoy this one, and I'm sure you're going to learn something just before the Giro kicks off and away. Well, welcome, Kevin. That's Dr. Kevin Sprouse. Welcome to Life in the Peloton,
1: round two. It's an honor to be back, Mitch. It's, uh, it's also good to see you again. You know, I'm kind of stuck over here in the US and uh, yeah, it's good to see you face-to-face.
0: It's great to see you face-to-face. It's not quite as good as being in person, but you know, this is the next best thing that we've all got used to at the moment. Um, And I did say last time, if anyone hasn't heard it, you got to go back and listen to the very intro episode with Kevin. We got, and we just talked basics. We talked what it's like to be on the road as a team doctor on a professional cycling team. And I said, I've got to get you back. And this is where it is. We've got you back. We're on the eve of the Giro, and what I want to do today is I do want to cover some general stuff, but what I want to do is I want to keep it a little bit more focused on grand tours, because I think they're a real special beast. Not that your job isn't important the rest of the time, but I think it really comes into play on these grand tours, a three-week tour when we're all together for three weeks. Lots and lots of stuff can happen, crashes, sicknesses, you know, even the, the mental side of things, and that's what I want to keep this podcast based around today.
1: No, I like it. And I think you're right. It does grand tours kind of accentuate what we as team doctors do, um, simply due to the degree of, of stress and the nature of kind of repetitive day after day strain that you put your bodies under as riders. And so on the, on the one day races, you know, certainly we need to be there for the big crashes and stuff, but if you get there healthy, like if we just get you to the start line, then really our job is pretty much done barring catastrophe right for the one week races there's a little more that we've got to do kind of in the in between times between stages but most everyone can tolerate a one a one week race at, at the pro level a grand tour is a totally different animal and that 24 days on the road 21 days of racing it really it stresses you guys but it stresses us uh, not in a bad way, but just in terms of what we need to provide. So it, it is a unique situation that we do three times a year.
0: Run me through just then a daily role, like, you know, and how they differ from, like, you sort of just touched on it a little bit there from a one day race or even a short stage race to a grand tour daily role in your eyes, in terms of, you know, the wake up, what your protocol is from there right through to going to bed, you know, because they are very, very long days. And sometimes it's not necessarily, I can imagine as busy as you are working the hospital or back in your own normal practice or whatever it might be. But there, I don't know, explain that and the different dynamic of what your job is day to day. I guess three, three dynamics here, grand tour, one day race, and then give it some comparison to back home.
1: Yeah. So um, I think that comparison to back home is really interesting because that's something uh, that I would say the, the other team staff Often reference, and certainly my colleagues back home in the hospital or, or within the practice reference. It's a very different flow to the day. I'd say the workload overall is typically somewhat similar in a grand tour. Like there's there's a lot of things that we need to do in a day. And I'll kind of walk through what those are in a minute. But it's from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. Like there's long day after long day after long day, and there's a lot of times in there where I'm doing nothing. You know, I may just be sitting in the car you know, listening to to Charlie or Andreas tell another story or, you know, we're laughing about this or that. Like it's, it, it's not hard that whole 14, 16 hours, whatever it is, but it's long and it's day after day. Whereas when I'm back home, the workday may be more eight to 10 hours, but it's much more compressed. So I would say they're, they're equally tiring, which, which isn't awful. I mean, it's, it's not, neither one is too draining. They're both enjoyable, but they kind of play out differently. Right. So, on a one-day race, on the one end of the spectrum, it's very much the case that the days leading into the race are really where the meat of my job happens. Um, and sometimes that's done from a distance, just making sure that you guys are are healthy and we're picking a, a, a roster for the race that is in a good position to race from a health standpoint. And then for other big one-day races like Flanders or Roubaix, we're often on-site days early with you guys. And so... It's the same thing, but it's under more of a microscope. It's looking at sleep, recovery, diet, general health. A lot of times, monitoring these in ways that you guys hopefully don't pick up on too much. You know, it's not constantly pitching and prodding and doing stuff. Um, You know, we use the Whoop band on our team, but even more, it's it's the conversations. It's the the catching you at breakfast or after dinner, and just the the questions that we as doctors ask that maybe have a little bit more behind it than you guys recognize. Maybe you do at this point, but like the idea is really to dig in and see how you are. Um, I can see too. So just interrupt there. There's two
0: hard things I could imagine for you is new guys on the team and, you know, like a grand tour, I guess you have got that time to get to know them and get to see their, their routine, their flow. Like, Oh, that's what he looks like when he's fresh. That looks like when he's tired. And now there's something different. Maybe he's sick. But over years, you get to know me, for instance, or Alex Howes, or whoever, you know our traits. You get new guys on the team, and you got to pick up on those traits very quickly, because like you said, you're not taking them to the room and giving them a once-over every day. And I guess the, the other thing I was thinking then too, as you were speaking, is a thing that could be, with a one-day race, potentially quite annoying is, I know it myself, and just stubborn male, or whether it just stubborn human beings, we, we hold on to these sicknesses and don't tell anyone. And and quite often, a lot of guys turn up to races sick, or you know, on their way to a sickness, and just and then suddenly you're dealing with that two days before the race. <laughs> Sorry, I've given you two different little questions there, but d- discuss
1: those two little things there. No, they're both good questions and good points. Um, you know, with the first one, having having a race with a new rider. You know, normally, we try to get to meet everybody at a camp and get a little bit of a feel for them, maybe have some, some phone calls, video calls. Um, during the last 18 months, during the pandemic, it's been really difficult. It's, it's accentuated that problem to the point where there were guys that raced all last year who are on the team this year that I've not met yet. Uh, and that's, that's really difficult for me, both in terms of working, but also just um, a little bit psychologically. Uh, you know to feel that level of disconnect so I went to the UAE tour and it was the first time I'd worked with uh, Ruben and Stefan um, guys that I'd talked to guys that I'd interacted with you know Ruben all year last year being in contact with him for different things Um, and then we finally sit down and meet it's like oh so you're Ruben right and it's and this is Ruben Guerrero who won the KOM jersey in the Giro last year so
0: if anyone out there knows who we're talking about
1: yeah Yeah. Great guy. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, our relationship I think was fine prior to that. Um, but having that face-to-face conversation just changes everything when even after the race, you know, we're talking over other things, we just kind of know each other a little better. Right. And so that definitely plays out on these one day races, especially early in the season when there's new riders trying to figure guys out, figure out how they, how they communicate, what they worry about, what they don't. And that kind of feeds into what you were just saying, recognizing which guys are going to kind of show up uh, saying they've been feeling great. They've been feeling like, and then, you know, first time I meet with them, it's like, Hey doc, you got any medication for this? You know, my nose is stuffy, whatever. I haven't been feeling great. Um, And it does, I mean, it's, it's a fairly common thing and I get it. I mean, I, I, I try and I don't think I've ever given anybody too hard a time about it. It's more like you know, it was something they considered mild. This is their job. They're going to put their head down, push through. But then when they get in front of the doctor, they're like, hey, you got a, a decongestant or you got an Advil or something? My head's killing me. Um, so it's understandable, but it definitely happens.
0: Yeah, well, there's also, I'm just thinking about it now, sometimes there's that pressure too. You You feel it coming and you've just been selected for a race and you're like do I red flag this? Because, you know, I could get pulled off this race, you know, potentially if it's Roubaix coming or something like that. Yeah. And you're like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm going to push through. So I can see how that
1: happens, but I let's think get that's back to crux get- of sports medicine, not to interrupt you, but I, I think it's a real crux of sports medicine working with athletes is recognizing their tendency to, to want to just kind of push through, but also the cutthroat nature of their employment and that I don't wanna take a guy off a race. I don't want to diminish their career opportunities that year. And I think I've gotten to where we've got a good enough relationship with among most doctors and riders, like not just me, but our medical staff, that you guys know that we're in there to help you get to and through the race. But it's still kind of a weird dynamic for you guys to know that for for every employment position on the team, as a rider, there's 20 other people who would love to be there.
0: How does a rider-patient confidential, rider confidentiality work, you know? Because, like, I guess with our normal GP, that is pretty simple. Everyone understands that. It goes there and it stays there. And there's no, like you said, there's no employment yeah. pressures there or anything. So, obviously, there's a point where, you know, you have to report this to the team and you may have to pull a rider out or stop them going to a race. And this is pre-COVID, obviously. This is a yeah. whole nother yeah. spectrum. How does that all sort of work and how do you gain that sort of trust from the riders after potentially you've reported them and not reported, but reported their yeah. sickness and they've
1: got pulled off a race and then suddenly, I don't know, does that does that affect things? How does that all work? Oh, it absolutely can. And I think it works differently on different teams from what I've seen in the past. Um, what I'm very adamant about is that the team employs me, but you guys mm. are my responsibility and my my, my primary purpose for being there. And so when there, where there's an issue where a rider's sick or injured or dealing with whatever, um, I will first tell the rider what I think needs to happen if that's coming off the race or, or, you know, talking to the directors and letting them decide. Um, but I always have that conversation with the rider first and the confidentiality. I still look at it as very much as that GP and patient confidentiality. Like it's the, it's the same thing. I will, if there's something dangerous to the rider or in some way, they're going to be a danger to the other members of the team or in the Peloton, you know, and they don't want to say anything about it. I may then say to the director, Hey, this guy, I think this guy needs to come off the race. I can't tell you why. Um, You know, and we'll work through it after the fact. I can only think of one time I've had to do that. I mean, generally it's a very open conversation and most riders once we talk about it, are happy to kind of be part of the conversation with the with the directors as well. So I'd say r- rarely, I'd say never has it been confrontational, um, but you do have to navigate that a bit. But ultimately, the the medical privacy still belongs to the rider, and and I don't think we can, uh, I, I don't think we can push that aside.
0: Just on that note, there, I just heard you say you know, there's the advice where it can be dangerous for the rider to continue a race and. For instance, it could be on the scene of a crash at the moment and you've made a quick assessment, and the rider wants to go on. He's got the adrenaline. I'm going to push on. But it also could be that night at the hotel and they're quite sick, or maybe they've got an injury that they think they can push through. Everyone remembers the famous Tyler Hamilton with a broken collarbone riding the rest of the Tour de France. You know, like I want to talk about the rider's pain threshold. And just recently, I've got a, a little story here. I hope Jimmy Whelan from our team doesn't mind me saying this story. He was in the Basque Country, through the Basque Country, just a couple of weeks ago, and he crashed 30k into the stage. You, I'm, you're going to know this story. And he went down. He wasn't sure what happened. He, had, you know, he felt a bit of a pain on his, on his hip, and his shoulder was a bit sore. He wasn't too sure. He jumped back on the bike. Very, very hard stage. Completed the rest of the stage, 160 kilometers still to go. It was 180, 190k stage, something like that crosses the line still wasn't feeling great couldn't really get out of the seat got scans that night and you can just correct me if i'm wrong here broken shoulder cracked hip or um pelvis and obviously couldn't start the next day and the doctor on scene there david um castle was what's wrong with you what is wrong with you why are you guys crazy like how how did you finish that stage? What you guys are mental? And like I sort of loved hearing that story because like I probably would have stopped. But I love that there's a nu- there's a million stories that we know. These these guys who get back on the bike and finish with broken arms and things like that. Is that something that you have found out over the years that cyclists do have this crazy pain threshold in comparison to the normal Joe Blow and other sports? Or is it
1: somewhat common out there? I don't know. I mean you do find it among other in other sports and even recreational athletes who are very dedicated. Um, but cycling tends to have guys that are above and beyond in this capacity. I mean, we had a guy, I I won't mention names, but we had a guy who rode the entire Tour de France on a broken foot a couple of years ago. It's just, and it blows my mind. And and it's even, it's one thing, you know, what Jimmy did was just shows incredible toughness and, you know, but to do that then in, in a grand tour, like day after day to, to know then that something's that wrong and to get back on the bike and keep pushing. You know, we we knew, again, going back to the idea, we we wouldn't let him do it if it was dangerous, right? But just the pain aspect of it uh, just kind of blows my mind. And so, yeah, I've seen guys guys race with multiple types of fractures and, uh, you know, or even just finish a stage, like you said. And, I mean, I think it's a combination of the adrenaline. It's a combination of uh, just... The drive and then you guys put in so much work long term and in the short term, you know, in the years leading up to an event and even in the weeks leading up that's very targeted to that event. Um, that psychologically it's very hard to just like bag those years of work and say, Ah, it hurts a little bit, I'm done. Shoot shoot uh, à l'arrière du peloton. cycling podcast team car the back of the pack, please.
2: Hello, Lionel here. That was Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France, interrupting Mitch's absorbing conversation with Dr. Kevin Sprouse briefly, to remind me to tell you that this episode is supported by Calm. Now, wherever you are in the world, it's likely you've had a difficult year or so with lockdowns and restrictions, and that can heighten feelings of stress or anxiety. Maybe you've been lucky, but I've certainly had my moments over the past year. Calm is an app that gives you the tools to improve your mental well-being by helping you clear your head with guided meditation programs, curated soundtracks, music, and imaginative sleep stories. If you go to calm.com slash cycle now, you'll get 40% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming. But don't just take my word for it. Here's Orla Chenoui, host of the cycling podcast Feminin.
3: I have a cam on my phone For a couple of years now I think Um, I started meditating A few years ago I stopped drinking alcohol I started to meditate instead Um, And I mean I've spoken about this Before I suffer from anxiety So it's something You know Mental wellness Is something that's Very present in my life and I just find it brilliant. It's so, what's wonderful about it is there are so many different packages for so many different reasons and needs in your life. There, are, There's a little section for kids, which I really like. Um, there are sleep meditations or sleep soundscapes. So I like falling asleep to the sound of like rain on my window, which is handy because I live in Amsterdam and it often rains on my actual window. But for some reason, it just sounds nicer on the cam app. Um, and I discovered one of the, one of the most joyous moments of my adult life recently. Um, when I woke at like 4 a.m. or something, one of the kids must have woke me up. And so I was trying to get back to sleep again. Um, and so I put on, I, I was browsing through the cam app. And discovered they had um, a sleep story with Killian Murphy, who I'm a bit of a massive fan of. And Killian Murphy was doing this story where he was taking us on a trip. He wasn't taking us. He was taking me on a train journey around Ireland and so I was able to well I I thought well this is the perfect thing to go to sleep except of course in my head I'm thinking oh, I'm in a train going around Ireland with Killian Murphy and this is the best thing that's ever happened to me (laughs) so I didn't manage to get back to sleep but I had a wonderful time with me and Killian on this train so um, there's lots to get out of the Calm app it's really enjoyable and I I, I use it frequently actually I'm a regular user I think it's really really good
2: so go to calm.com slash cycle to get 40% off a Calm premium subscription that's calm.com slash cycle to listen to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash cycle. And relax. Now back to the soothing, reassuring tones of Dr Kevin Sprouse with Mitch.
0: Let's go back to the grand tour and let's talk about one thing that I find and maybe a lot of people don't know, but you sort of, I don't know if this has happened for all the years, but I remember it at least for the last five to 10 years I've been professional is that in most grand tours that doctors do about half of the grand tour just to keep them fresh on the ball. Chat to me about that change over there um, and what you sort of then provide on both sides, you're the first doctor and what you sort of have to gear up the next doctor coming in, and vice versa. When you're coming in second half, how, how that differs from being a first half doctor, because you're essentially getting the you know the, the wounded troops. And the first doctor is like, yep, you can deal with that, mate. I've kept them together till here. You know How's that all transition
1: going? Yeah, there's a lot of that, actually. Um, we do split the grand tours on our team between the doctors. So we'll have a doctor do the first it's basically a four week stent, right? When you look at the days before and all that. So one doctor will do the first two weeks, then another doctor will do the second two. Um, other teams have a doctor do the entire race. There's not a, 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 a right or wrong way to do it, I think. Um, like you alluded to, one, our, our method keeps our doctors a bit fresher and on the ball. Two, we're all working clinically. So there are some teams who have doctors that only work for the team which uh, there's, there's arguments for and against that. Um, we have doctors that work clinically, which is my preference because we don't become, I, th- I think we don't become too myopic. We're not just working with a very small group of cyclists. We're seeing the full spectrum of patients. So when you guys come to the room with you know stomach pain and stuff like that, or have you know mm. other non-sport injuries or illnesses, we, we're competent in dealing with those. So it, it's a mix of that the rationale is a mix of staying fresh, but also being able to maintain our clinical jobs because we'd probably get fired if we just left for four weeks at a time. (laughs) Um, But you're right, the handoff, so the first doctor usually gets a group of riders and staff that is energized, motivated, like there's this big build to come in, everybody's feeling good, they've peaked for this event. And even if there's no injuries, like the the tour just kind of goes along nicely, at that handoff, which is usually the first rest day, staff starting to get tired, riders are starting to get tired, some people are maybe starting to get a little sick or just worn down. And so the doctor coming in on the second half, oftentimes when I've done that, I've had to tone it down a bit and realize Mm -hmm. that you can't come in and be like, hey guys, you know, I'm ready to go because I'm fresh. (laughs) You've got to get there and just kind of tone it down and meet everybody where they are in terms of of their energy levels. with the injuries and illnesses and things, it's a pretty seamless turnover. Most of you know our medical staff works very well together. And so there's even in the, the first couple of weeks, that doctor is communicating with the doctor coming in in the second half. And so it's not like it all takes place at the handoff, but we try to stay involved during the race and then spend a bit of time face to face on that rest day, handing off the problems almost physically like, well, Sometimes even walk room to room and see you guys. And say, okay, this is what Mitch oh. is dealing with. You know, um, it depends on the logistics and the travel schedule, but that's that's always my preference: is that we're able to do that. So that part is pretty seamless. I'd, I'd say the biggest challenge is that is coming into a, a declining energy level and being excited to be there.
0: Just talking about now, we, we 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 were talking about the Giro more specifically today. But have you done all three Grand Tours? Yeah, I have. Yeah. In your opinion, and you might even know this also because you're the head doctor, so you get to oversee um, all the data coming in or all the notes coming in from all the doctors from all the races anyway. Mm -hmm. But in your opinion, um, how do these three tours differ in terms of, you know, the Giro typically can get quite cold at some of those mountain passes. So I'm imagining, you know, there's a lot of sort of sicknesses type like flus and, you know, general cold sicknesses, sore throats, what that sort of be. I'm guessing all tours have a lot crashes. You can't necessarily. Well, maybe the tour has more crashes. I'm not too sure. And the Vuelta maybe could be dealing with the heat side of things, and you know, guys being too relaxed, maybe. Um, but yeah, you know, like run me through the two, the three tours there, and
1: maybe what you prefer, maybe you don't.
0: Sure. What's the difference there?
1: Yeah. So you hit it pretty square on the head there. I mean, the so the Giro, the Giro is probably one of. I don't know. I like doing all of them. I've I've done the tour seven times, the Giro four or five times, the Welta four or five times. The Giro is great and and people come into it very energized early-ish in the season. Like they've had some, you know, some uh, racing building into that, but everybody's fairly fresh and, and really ready to go. So that, that part of it is, is fun. Fitness is usually very good. But you're right. The the cold weather, oftentimes uh, some long transfers, especially when you get either if you Mm. start down south or, you know, when we start in, say, Israel and then come over, it's just an added stress on the body. And so some some of the transfers, some of the weather kind of set guys up to get sick. And so we do see a number of upper respiratory illnesses, uh, colds, things that they can push through. But definitely dealing with that more probably in the in the Giro than the other two grand tours. In the Tour de France, definitely it's the stress. I mean, it's
0: yeah.
1: everybody's just a bit on edge. There's good energy, but there's also, you know, all the sponsors are there. Everybody's kind of got high expectations. And so coming in stress- already running
0: hot, you know, probably yeah. on the edge of getting sick before they even start.
1: Yeah. Because I mean that if you If you get to do the tour as a rider, you set up your whole season around it, right mm-hmm. Everything will peak for the tour um, and so they come in right on that that threshold of being really well trained and the next step is getting sick right mm. and so there there's stressors in that that regard, so even though the weather isn't necessarily as dramatic most years as say the giro, I would say the the illness incidence is not significantly less that varies year to year, but we've definitely had a number of, uh, you know, respiratory illnesses. And then you start to get some GI, some stomach illnesses too. um, that type of year, just kind of the way the flow of these things work. Um, and then the injuries like you, you alluded to everybody. I mean, the first, everybody who watches cycling knows the first few stages of the tour are just Everybody's twitchy. There's people going down left and right. They're hitting road furniture, landing in ditches. And so, yeah, it tends to be pretty busy from that standpoint.
0: It sounds and like you've almost got, sorry, I was just interrupting. It sounds like almost got, and you can tell me about the third kit bag. You've got like three different kit bags. Like the, the first kit bag's like full of cold and flu and, you know, lots of nasal stuff, like nasal sprays. And the two the bags just got full of patches. And, you know, let's, let's get to the Vuelta bag.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, so the Vuelta, like you characterized it, you, you kind of get guys who are, I mean, definitely still professional about how they approach it, but there's much less stress. I mean, the Vuelta is, I actually love doing the Vuelta for that reason. It's, it's a nice time of year. I mean, it is hot, but it's a nice time of year in Spain. The, the level of stress is like two notches lower than the other Grand Tours. And because of that, honestly, people tend to perform pretty well you know you take mm. take some of that weight off the shoulders i'd say the main things that we see there really transition more to again the injuries crashes those type of things that are just going to happen um but more of the stomach bug kind of hot weather stuff so you might you might get some well before we had chefs uh some food poisoning um at some of the hotels just given you know it stays hot in the areas where they eat and cook and but even just one of the things that we see that honestly i kind of when it was first uh posed to me as a as a way for people getting sick i didn't quite believe it but the stuff flying up from the road onto the water bottles um yeah so you know you've got in the summer you've got a lot of farming going on you've got a lot of uh harvesting whatever olives and 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 you've got trucks going back and crossing back and forth across the roads spilling stuff and you know sometimes that's manure or whatever they're using on the fields right and then you guys ride through it maybe it's raining and stuff's flying up on the water bottle and you're drinking out of the water bottle Um, so that tends to be a bit seasonal as well we'll see that in Belgium and we'll see that uh, in the Vuelta if it rains so each each race does have a bit of a character to it even from a medical standpoint Um, and, and when you've done them a few times you start to expect certain things and and I haven't started packing differently for them yet but maybe my kits will start to look different now that's a good point
0: is there any on these grand tours and more specifically the Giro right now is there more is there any like general general practitioner or GP um sort of work with the staff and like you know extra personnel on the team because we're just talking specifically about the riders here but the team can potentially have you know eight riders and two or three times that of staff, you know, 16 to 20 staff members on the race. Do they yeah. all come to you
1: or is that sort of crossing the line? I don't know how that works actually. No, I actually I actually urge them to come to us. I mean, I, I think of our medical staff on the team as being their medical staff as well because if they're not doing their job, whether at a race or away from the race, if they're hindered from an illness, injury, whatever concern, you know, they can't, contribute what they need to contribute for you guys to perform at your best. And ultimately that's what we're all there for is for, you know, to support you guys and to support the, the greater team. I absolutely want them coming to us with, with any concerns and they do. Um, sometimes there's injuries, you know, whether it's a mechanic who cuts his hand or, you know, somebody falls down the steps of the truck or the bus, you know, falls down some hotel stairs. Yeah. You know, I've seen, I've <laughs> seen some crazy stuff. You know, we'll take care of that, but it's also illnesses that come up, um, and oftentimes even questions around, you know, maybe they have a, a longstanding medical condition. Um, oh. They have high blood pressure, or um, seizures, or whatever that they're they're medicated for, and, and they run out of medicine, or they lose their medicine. We've got to help them find a pharmacy to get it. So it does happen frequently, and at the Tour de France, it even includes. Um, sponsors oftentimes i've had numerous times where a a sponsor who's there uh gets injured or gets sick and whatever and we're you know seeing them and trying to help them feel better so that they can move on to the next stage with us
0: let's go now a little bit more specific to the race and the the race i think this is really interesting um i want you to run through in what you try and implement but in general what our team or most teams implement and that's the the post-race protocol um and I want to talk a little bit about the bus and the hotel. And that's to do with recovery. Also could be to do with after a rainy stage. It could be like, you know, let's have a, you know, a knack um, or something to make sure you guys aren't going to catch a, a flu or a cold. And then we get back to the hotel, whether that's a ice bath or whether that's feeling. Run me through what you try and implement with our team.
1: Yeah. So um, I think the nutritional component of recovery is massively important for performance but also for health Um, when you start to get into a caloric deficit and a carbohydrate deficit and that deficit extends in terms of time period uh, we know that depresses the immune system and so uh, a part of that recovery process that is medical that you may not think of being medical is that recovery bottle you're handed you know the rice and chicken or eggs or whatever that's made on the bus all of that is is supporting you medically and from a health standpoint for the next day so it really starts with that if it's been rainy if it's been cold we may pull out some some things like you mentioned like the 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 knack or the n-acetylcysteine also called flumacil in spain which is just a, a an antioxidant that's been shown to help kind of clear mucus and and just improve how quickly somebody heals up it's not a you know it's certainly not a be all end all for warding off sickness but it's just a little bit of support like we do with vitamin c or um, mm. even a hot tea if it's been really cold just get you warmed up zinc um, or something yeah yeah zinc for sure so it's it's using that stuff but using it in a supportive way not to say that it's going to be you know, like you have to have this or you're going to get sick it's more just yeah. making sure you have what you need um and then there's the environmental component too so if it's been a really cold day getting you warmed up uh, and that can be just taking a shower. Um, A lot of times it's making sure you get to the shower quickly and don't linger on the bus because you know, sometimes on the bus it feels a little warmer in there because you've been out in the cold, but it's still not that warm and we really want you cleaned off, really warmed up and recovered. And so kind of pushing guys into the shower sometimes, vice versa if it's been really hot, Helping you figure out ways to cool down, whether that's an ice bath or a cold shower or just, you know, putting ice down your shirt or whatever. Um, But all those things of kind of bringing the body back to a a place of normality, whether it's calories, uh, antioxidant support, temperature support, all that moves to get you into a better place to avoid illness and be better ready to go the next day. And then we get to the hotel and you guys have the the benefit of a, a massage each night, which is... Fantastic, I think. What do you miss back that to, when you're not at a race?
0: Well, I was going to say just before you go to that. Back to the bus, just in case yeah. anyone doesn't understand yeah. exactly what we're talking about. Um, you know, a recovery bottle. What you mean is we have a protein shake in that bottle, and our team. And this is the first time when I moved to EF, our our team gives us to, gives that to us at the end of the stage, um, and that was something new to me. And that was something that I thought I didn't think that was very important until you start doing these Giro stages where you might finish at the top of a mountain and you think, oh, I've just got to get back to the bus. And most of the time, people think the bus is parked directly at the finish. But in the Giro, they love adding like 20, maybe even 30 kilometers on at the end of the stage to ride back to your bus. The so 15 or 20 of them could be descending, but you get to the bottom of the descent and you find like it's 10K flat. You're doing like another you know half hour. So this this protein and or this a carbohydrate protein bidden mixture is sort of vital to start already that process um, for the next day, which is what you're talking about. We get that straight at the end of the stage, bang, straight into the bidden cage. And anyone out there who's listening, who's asking for my bottle on the descent, you can't have that bottle because I need that one for recovery. Um, Then when we get back to the bus, like you said, the bus driver's already prepared a beautiful meal back there. It's chicken, it's rice, Um, you sit down and – also, on another note, you said they're trying to get guys in the bus. I'm typically trying to get the guys in the shower too because I'm like, let's just get the hell out of here because the bus can't roll until everyone's showered. Right. So, um, this is more or less exactly what you said. I sort of wanted to break that down in case people didn- haven't been inside a bus, which I'm pretty sure not many people have. But let's get to the hotel and the massage. I have been missing my massages,
1: I can tell you. Yeah. No, it's a great... It's a great um tool for the body i think it's also a great tool for the mind quite honestly um just to be able to to decompress a bit and certainly work out some of the 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 kinks and the trigger points and you know the the manual therapy component of it is is huge and i think very beneficial you guys also tend to unload a bit on the swan years during that time right
0: yeah you know, like i think you 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 sort of conscious that in the first week, you are probably a bit more conscious of like what you're saying. That you know, you build up this relationship with your soigneur. And when I say your swanier, most of the time you have the same swanier throughout the year. And when I say that, you probably have two or three guys or girls that you work with. If they're on your race, you know, I I go to John Murray or you know, maybe I go to Pascal. You know, they're my two guys and yeah you, know, you build up this relationship there you your mates, and like you said once the once the race gets a week old, you just need to let some steam off sometimes and you don't even know you're doing it and it's actually exactly what you said. I think the massage is actually not that much about the physical recovery of the massage; it's more just like time to to lay down, relax, and you know let the mind relax
1: yeah and it's kind of a safe place for you guys to i mean you can you can be quiet or you can you know bitch and moan about whatever went wrong that day right and know that it's kind of it just stays in that room and the same with the kairos you know it's a it's a good place to just kind of let off some steam which i think the reason i mentioned that is that's a a big component of recovery if you if you kind of keep some of that stuff inside which it's going to happen i mean it's a competitive environment you guys are are all fighting for position for hours on end, like constantly being told to move up or come to the car and get this and then move back up. Like it's, it's stressful. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have an outlet to kind of at the end of the day process and and release that a bit, then it's just going to impede your, your recovery overnight, your stress levels go up and all that. So I think that's a massive part of the recovery process. Um, one just before you go on there, I want to mention
0: yeah. something here. And I want to ask you about this. There comes a point in a grand tour for me where, and this is definitely not an attack or saying that it's bad, but we have so much support. It, like you said, you got chiros, you got um, you know in the massage, and you got the doc there. You might even have you know another person to come and check you, whether that's a, a physio or a nutritionist. And you get back from the stage and you're like, bang, from one room to the next. You know, like anyone listening to this is like, what are you complaining about? You go get your massage. You go get a checkup from your chiro. The doctor comes and checks you. Nutritionist brings in some food. You're like getting, you know, wrapped up in cotton wool. But there comes a point where it's too much. Sure. And you just literally want to wipe the slate clean and go, I'm doing nothing tonight and I want to go to my room. And what I wanted to ask you is the balance between sleep and let's say massage. Let's just put all that stuff in the, the bracket of massage, you know, Cairo, whatever. There comes a point, and, and Lawson Craddock made me aware of this, that when he crashed in the Tour de France a few years ago and famously rode the rest of the tour, he said it came to a point where he goes, I was just was not getting massage anymore because I was concentrating on sleep. I just pretty much threw my massage aside. We got to the hotel so late that it was like, eat get to bed and get as many hours I could sleep. What's your opinion on that? Because, you know, there is that balance. What? Yeah, we're getting, let's talk about the Vuelta. We're not not getting to the hotel till nine or 10 o'clock at night. And then you start that process.
1: Yeah. And and you got to throw dinner in there as well. I mean, there's, there's a lot to do in that time. Um, I'm the one who had that conversation with Lawson and said, look, I think, I think we need to prioritize sleep and see what we can cut out. And, I think there's probably some of that to be gained even when not injured. Like if you, if you kind of look across everything that you have to do and the timing you have to do it in. So a late stage at the Vuelta, the Vuelta is nice because it's going to start late the next day too. So everything's shifted. Um, But still when, when you've got kind of a compressed window, maybe it's a long transfer or whatever else. And you start to look at dinner, Cairo, massage, whatever else, I do think there's a point at which you say, actually, you know, I'm going to cut one of these out. Probably not dinner, <laughs> um, <laughs> but cut something out because I'm physically I feel good, and I really would benefit more from an extra hour of sleep tonight. Um, and I'm totally on board with that. And honestly, I'd like to see cycling go a little bit more that direction. Um, you know, we've even gone so far as to talk about the timings of dinner in those cases, and. A lot of times we've got really late dinners that end up with like a 10, 1030 dinner and then you're straight to bed. That's not great for digestion. That's not uh, great for sleep either. And so looking at it and saying, is there a way to do even dinner differently um, mm. on, on a transfer stage? So I think we're starting to look at it in a new light and recognize that just cramming as much as we can into there. Sometimes it's the expense of sleep is not necessarily the best protocol for you guys the the flip side is there's not an easy answer to what is best so i I don't Mm. sit here and pretend to know that we should do it exactly one way or the other but i think having an open mind to say, yeah tonight maybe massage isn't going to be the best thing for me i think an extra hour of sleep is i think that's totally legitimate
0: you've just mentioned a few times here about dinner and about fueling and preparing for you know these races and a common problem well i'm going to say common but maybe individually common problem for me is I get into these grand tours and you get so tired that for me I'm just trying to recover I'm just trying to think like how can I make myself feel better you know we talked about the stuff that you can get done by therapists but what can I do myself and this natural habit is just fuel I need a fuel you know I need to I need to eat you know at the bus I need to eat and then at dinner a big dinner has a big stage tomorrow and there comes a point for me anyway where my body's trying to just deal... This is my own um, thought on it. My body's just trying to deal with recovering. My legs are screaming. My Everything else is aching. And then suddenly I'm just filling my face with, with you know a big plate of pasta and all this food. And suddenly my stomach's like, well, now I've got to digest this. And like you said, and then you're laying down and going to bed. I've found that sometimes towards the end of a grand tour, I'm just feeling strained and overloaded in the digestive system, whether that be the digestive or whether that be the liver is that is that am i imagining that what is nope. what is what is the what is a good amount of fuel and when is is there a point of overfueling because i'm thinking people out there going you just couldn't eat enough i could imagine
1: yeah no you're not imagining it at all i mean i think um that is a common a common scenario among uh really any endurance athletes that are doing either big blocks of training or uh or grand tours it's one, you do need a lot of calories, but two, I think we tend to fixate on it as athletes that um, it's something we can do actively to recover. Like, you know, a lot of things about recovery are passive. They're, um, you know, going to bed early, they're uh, you know, disconnecting from stressors, they're propping your feet up, right? And sometimes you want something active that you can, you feel like you're moving yourself toward this recovered state, whatever that is. Mm. And- eating is that. It's it's a way that you can do something to feel better. I, I think we have a tendency to perhaps overdo it in that regard. It can be difficult to really come up with a, a strict number in terms of calories on what you should be eating uh, because everybody's effort, even for a given stage, is going to look different. You know, if, if it's a flat stage and you're tasked with kind of protecting the leader and, you know, maybe, maybe there's echelons or even just kind of a, a stressful day in the peloton, and you guys are staying up front, you're going to be burned out. But if you did your job well, the leader is probably going to feel pretty chill for the day. He's like, "Oh, it was an easy day, mm-hmm. right?" And so, just looking at at the length or the hours of the stage or whatever, and saying, "You know, you guys should eat around this much," is is really going to it's going to do somebody an injustice. Same on a mountain stage where you know a, a sprinter may kind of set up early in the gruppetto and it's still hard to get over the mountains, but they're not putting out the same intensity, uh, the same carbohydrate or glycolytic burn to do it. So it's, you got to individualize it. And I think what it really comes down to is we can look at the numbers, you know, kilojoules burned and things like that on your garments and help figure it out. But a lot of times it's, I feel like we can look at it in big buckets as opposed to small calories. You know, did you, did you massively under eat? Were you about right today or were you way over, Right. And then look at food quality and quality plays a, a big role. So if you've got lots of vegetables and, and healthy grains that have been cooked by a chef who knows how to you know, both do it in a healthy manner, but make it taste good, then you're going to kind of default into where you need to be from a refueling standpoint. If you end up with those very late dinners, kind of something hastily thrown together, or you're at a race where we don't have a chef, I feel like that's where things really tend to go awry it's a difficult equation. I agree. It's not, it's hard to nail it just right. And, and your ex, your experience goes a long way, I think.
0: Let's talk about the other end of the spectrum um, and, you know, depletion, which can be uh, something that you just knew happened and you couldn't help it. For instance, the race just happened. It's going so hard. You never had time to get a feedback. You know, you you didn't even have time to get a gel and you finished the stage. Okay. But ultimately, You're going to be depleted for the next day. It can also happen another way, where let's say a climber is thinking about the mountain stage is coming, and he's thinking, you know what, I want to be as light as possible, and he's just not fueling enough during the day, and maybe not recovering well enough at the night, so he's ultimately slowly depleting himself over a grand tour. Which I think we're slowly depleting ourselves over a grand tour anyway. What I want to ask you is because I've been down this road myself before, is that I unknowingly depleted myself, but I paid for it for three or four days afterwards and i just didn't know what was wrong i was going out the back straight away i was like what is wrong with me i filled up as much as i could that night i ate as you know like a pig but i'd done the damage in the race tell me what happens there because i think some guys experience that but they don't even know what what happened because they thought yeah yeah okay i got my pastor in tonight i should be sweet tomorrow
1: Yeah. When you get really deep in the hole from a fueling standpoint, what we're talking about is glycogen depletion. So glycogen is stored carbohydrate in the muscle and you can only store 1500 to 2000 calories. And obviously you're going to burn a lot more than that in in any given stage. And so if it's, if you're constantly depleting that and you get a little bit too far, your body has certain things that it does to go into like a, almost like a starvation mode or, or this, this, switch flips to kind of protect you from doing too much, you know, evolutionarily, you don't want to die, right? It doesn't know that there's three ambulances behind and cars full of food. Like it just, it wants to to, just shut things down. And so even though you can refill the glycogen for the most part with a, a good refueling program, once you finish and before you start the next day, some damage is done to the muscles. Um, there's hormonal, I won't say hormonal damage. There's hormonal, repercussions of that and there's still a bit of a governor that's left on to say okay yesterday you did the same thing you climbed on a bike and you took off and it went really poorly like we ended up totally depleted um which puts us at risk for illness and all kinds of stuff and now you're climbing back on a bike and do it again we're going to put a governor on this and make sure you don't go too hard right Uh so the body just starts to slow things down a bit and it's almost like you need to um kind of get it back to a place where it's comfortable again for a bit. I mean, this is a really oversimplification, but I think people can identify with the idea that, you know, if you're constantly putting the body in a, in an overstressed position, it's going to, if you don't slow down, it's going to slow you down. And then, so you've got to kind of retrain it to say, okay, now that everything's full again, I'm calm, maybe have, have an easy day in there and, and then the body's like, okay, we, we can do this. And it kind of releases a bit unless you go again. W- which is why a rest day can be so perfectly timed if you, if you get it right. Is,
0: is it though um, true in terms of that it's not as simple as, for instance, everyone knows the feeling of hunger flooding. And, you know, hunger flooding extremely. So, you're hunger flat and you ride through that and you really, really deplete yourself. Is it not as simple as fueling up that night? Because what, from what I understand, you simply just can't absorb that. The muscles are going to take a few days to fully replenish. Is that, how
1: does that all work? Yeah, you'll, you'll replenish the, the vast majority of it. But, there, you know, if you can hold 2,000 calories and you maybe drop, you hunger flat and you push through, you're going to get down to maybe 5. You're not going to get to zero, right? Like oh. that would be... Your body won't let that happen. It'd be catastrophic. But maybe you get down to 500 or 300 and you refill and you're back to call it 1700, right? Like that's all. So you're starting at a 300 deficit and you've got a little bit of damage to the muscles. You've got this uh, hormonal and and central governor kind of holding you back Uh. a bit. Um, But you still kind of try to go and you try to go because you need to be with the group. And so you started at 700, you deplete again. The next day, you maybe only get it up to 1500. So it's this like constant losing scenario until maybe you've got a chance to have, you know, it's an easy day on the bike or it's a rest day, and kind of things can build back up. So it's not strictly glycogen by any means, um, but it plays a role. Uh, your your body knows to kind of shut things down when glycogen gets to a, a certain level. You know, call it a quarter tank maybe. Um, mm. You know, it's like in the car when the fuel light comes on, right? Yeah. Um, your body will just kind of take you down a few gears and say well we don't want to go empty so this is all you got now is that what we're seeing at the
0: top end like and i don't want to focus too much on the bottom end which is what i'm sort of talking about is the guys getting dropped from the peloton that's uh something as well but probably the more interesting thing is when we see those differences between the guys who are toe-to-toe for you know two weeks two and a half weeks and all of a sudden you see this wheels fall off they say he's cracked you know in your opinion what is and this is many many things could have happened there but yeah. just from a very general point of view what is generally happening to the guys who are cracking and let's talk about the guys at the back too the guys who have to pull out of the race um who yeah. just can't go on is that what's happening what you're saying
1: day to day slowly depleting and finally the they crack i would guess if, if we're talking strictly from a dietary standpoint, because like you said, I mean, they could get sick, they could, there's psychological thing, all kinds of things can happen. But if we're looking at those two scenarios from a dietary standpoint, I would guess that more frequently that that's two different scenarios. The guy in the back who eventually just falls off and can't you know, cannot get back is probably that cumulative day after day um, just going a bit harder than they're able to replenish. And that may not be strictly nutritional. They may be doing their nutrition correctly, but they don't have the fitness to hang. And what happens is, that, so they're pushing at a higher relative intensity um, than the guys who are able to hang in there, which means they have a higher nutritional need and they can't meet that, right? So mm. it's kind of a losing equation on the back end. And eventually their, their bank account is depleted and they're out the back. Um, <laughs> the guy on the front who's been there the whole time and just suddenly has this, just kind of comes apart, it's probably much more of an acute fueling problem that day, right? So um, sometimes that's a, a gastrointestinal problem. We've seen it with guys who get pick up a little bit of a stomach bug, maybe have spend a bit of the night in the bathroom, um, and then they feel good the next morning, but they're just empty, and all of a sudden they've got nothing. Uh, but it could also be that they you know, missed a feed bag and, and, and blew it off and didn't eat enough, and all of a sudden – you know, they hit that spot and just boom, they they come apart. Um, There's some interesting research around how the mind and the body kind of work together in that scenario and even the idea of perceived effort. Um, So, you know, two guys can be at the front of the race, both equally well-fueled and able to do the same effort, but... Uh, if one guy is kind of smiling and the other guy, you know, looks over (laughs) the other guy and gives him that look like, Hey, this, this doesn't hurt, you know, is hiding it well, or even tricking himself into it. And the other guy is like deep in a pain cave. It's very likely that he's just going to pop. Right. And you've probably experienced that just as an athlete in the past. Um, you know, if you, if, if you're able to kind of summon, uh, a smile, so to speak, um, your whole body feels better for it. And if you can smile at the guy next to you who's struggling, like you can see them kind of immediately just shoulders drop.
0: It's funny Uh, you say that because I I can't remember if it was um, my coach or who told me, but they said, you know, on your head stem, stick a smiley face or stick a note saying smile. And I do try and remember that, especially in the moments when it's raining cold, crosswind in Belgium and you're going, what the hell am I doing here I'm like laugh it off you know yeah. good this is this is fun you know like and it takes a lot of mental strength and you, you sort of and this is a slightly different scenario but you sort of this is like you're trying to you, you're fighting yourself almost and you you just laugh about how ridiculous it is and exactly what you say you you come out of that that tunnel that dark tunnel you're like it still hurts just the same the rain's still the same your hands are just as cold but you're sort of laughing at yourself at it and you can almost make a, a funny moment of it. Um, yeah. It's interesting I mean, that psychology.
1: Got, you've always got more in the tank and we've all experienced this with, uh, you know, whether you've done a recreational 5K run or, a you know, 10 mile TT or whatever it is, you feel like you're just totally worked and then you see the finish line and all of a sudden you pick up the pace and like you sprint through the finish. It's like, well, where did that come from? If you were totally mm-hmm. depleted, you couldn't do that. Um, but there's more there and that psychological interplay with, with the biology is really interesting and that is what's going on I think at the front of the race um, we don't know yet how to quite crack it but there's interesting research on it so maybe we will one day
0: well so I've got a couple last questions for you um, I want to talk about caffeine for a minute um, because this is now we we're talking about nutrition and I think this is something that is um, really interesting and I use it as well I'm a massive coffee drinker, but as well use caffeine gels in the race or even in training now, when I get that ridiculous session, I'm like, well, um, I want to talk about the benefits of caffeine and how it actually does work. But I want to also, if you can tell me about when you do use caffeine, this is what I've sort of thought. I don't know if this is true. The feeling I get is caffeine allows you to mask the pain or whatever it does, allows you to go that bit deeper. But the problem is, your body has that pain level to stop you going that deep for a reason. The next day you pay the price. Tell me a little bit about how it works and the price you do pay for it.
1: Yeah, so the study, there's vast studies on caffeine and performance. Um, And it is definitely effective. It's not a game changer. I mean, it's not the be all end all, but it's a good way to get an extra percent or two. Um, And timed appropriately, it does allow you to kind of change your threshold a bit. Um, uh, there's a primarily a, a mental or a psychological component to it in the way that it's a stimulant. Um, but it does, you know, perhaps at high enough levels uh, provide a little bit of a higher heart rate and some of the things that you need to just turn the engine up a bit, right. From, yeah. a, from a strict stimulant standpoint. Um, the studies typically look at really high doses. I mean, 400 600 milligrams which is it's a lot and it's not what we typically recommend for people so so you got to imagine they set up these studies to elicit the the most benefit they can to see if it's effective that doesn't mean that's the correct real world use because as you mentioned you've got to race the next day you've got to sleep that night you've got to Mm -hmm. race the next day like it's not always the best way to utilize it so oftentimes what we'll do is talk to you guys about Timing your coffee intake before the race, timing your uh, your gel intake, and maybe looking for an overall load of somewhere between two and three hundred milligrams in a day, including that morning coffee and everything else. So it's so it's reasonable enough to expect a support of performance and maybe a little bit of a jolt when you need it, um, but that you can still go to bed at night, that you can sleep well, and that you can uh, wake up the next day without feeling like you went. Past your threshold, past your governor, and now you've got to pay the price for it.
0: Mm. Let's just talk about something else, and not necessarily a stimulant now, and um, something that some guys might get to enjoy at the end of the tour. And I think this is drifting al- away from the end of uh, away from the peloton a bit, because definitely when I first started, there was a wine on the table every night, or occasionally you could have a beer, but now I don't often see it on the table at all. It's more when there's a birthday or you win, you know, the Giro or you win a stage, you have a champagne or something. How much does alcohol really affect our performance? And like having a beer on the bus, you know, I've heard about this infamous, you know, Movistar team. I've got to get on that team. They've got a fridge there with beers. They come in. Valverde has a beer every day. That's what he has. He's never going to change it. And that's his recovery. How much does it affect our performance? Is that, is that a myth or is it true? Tell us
1: about that. No, I think, I think it's true and I think it's individual. Um, but you're right. I mean, Sagan's always got a beer after the race. Uh, I've heard tale from some of our directors uh, that one of them was on a team that when you walked in, there were three bottles of liquor on the wall and you picked which one you wanted a shot from. That's, <laughs> how, that's how you started your recovery. Um, so, you know, I, I think, so alcohol, it, it's a toxin. Right, it's a it's something your body has to um, has to process, has to kind of work to eliminate. It really doesn't. Alcohol in and of itself doesn't have any properties that are, that's going to help recovery. There's carbohydrates in beer. There's antioxidants in wine. You know, those things may play a small role, but you can get them elsewhere without the toxin added. Um, so i i think it does impact recovery but i think where it impacts recovery more that we've not really appreciated in the past is sleep um, mm. and maybe not one drink you know i i would think you know if you had a glass of wine with dinner or a beer after the stage there's probably very little if any downside to recovery um, but i do think any more than that and you're probably crossing a threshold where it's going to disrupt sleep, disrupt some of the uh, recovery processes, even some of the hormonal processes. Um, And given that and how much effort you put into prepping for a grand tour or any race and wanting to perform day after day, it just seems like a good thing to avoid until, you know, either you win and you have a a glass of champagne or at the end of the race and you kind of celebrate with, with a few drinks. Um, Yeah, but it's probably not, it's probably not horrendous in moderation to be honest well this is a bit of a big
0: one and this is sort of the last thing i wanted to chat to you about and i've left it to the end because everyone knows about this right now but they don't know how it's affecting cycling per se on the inside i'm talking about covid um the new way we're living our lives everyone's got something different in their life i'm sure but how are you seeing that pro cycling's changed, and how has your job changed to keeping the team on the road, whether that is for a season, for a grand tour, more specifically the Giro coming up. You've probably been doing the preparations for the Giro team. What are some protocols? What are some things you've implemented that you would
1: have never have done two years ago? Yeah, it's changed my job a lot. I mean, I think it's changed everybody's job a lot, but you're asking about mine. you know aside from the fact that i've not been able to travel to as many races a lot of my role within the team has become much more administrative um, in the oversight of covid protocols as opposed to working closely with with athletes on injuries illnesses dietary things uh, you know performance the things that i really love i you know i'll be honest i don't love dealing with the COVID stuff i don't i don't love i mean Nobody likes COVID, but even like the administrative side of it, like that's just not my thing. Um, But we've all had to kind of step into roles we're not, we didn't really sign up for, right? And so a lot of times, uh, especially last year, it was figuring out um, where we can get tests, how to submit the results of those tests, what's the testing protocol going to be at this race versus this race, Um, just constantly juggling these balls around testing and, and sanitary protocols and where can we have two people in a hotel room versus one, mm. um, you know, is this person allowed to fly if they land this day, you know, they'll have this many days off to quarantine. It was just constant questions around logistics and what's, what's acceptable and what's not. This year we've got a little bit more of a flow to that so that we do have in place some protocols within the team of, you know, if you travel, how long do you need to kind of sit it out to this you get there early wait on the side quarantine make sure you don't develop symptoms and so we've kind of got that down but it's still it's still a lot of logistics and filing of reports with the uci (laughs) um and that just is what it is but it kind of it kind of stinks i'll be ready when i'm ready for it all to be over
0: Uh, i think like like everyone out there listening right now um Mate, finally seeing as you're not going to be the Giro this year thinking back to your Giros what are you really going to miss what are you going to miss about being on the Giro what are you going to miss about being in Italy what's that one thing that sticks in your mind about the Giro
1: d'Italia that's easy it's the food I mean (laughs) (laughs) I love the race and and the race is great because it's it's kind of a passionate race Um, you know the riders are into it the fans are into it like It's beautiful scenery. It's dramatic. Um, So definitely miss that part. I kind of say the food tongue-in-cheek, but the food when you're in Italy, Mm -hmm. even at the little, like, I'd say especially at the little mom-and-pop hotels that maybe the hotel is not that special to look at, but you go to dinner, and it's all these fresh vegetables and amazing pasta, and they finish it with a nice cannoli. Or as Alberto told me, it's not cannoli if it's one, it's cannolo. Yeah. um so you know just having that opportunity to enjoy the food but also kind of the the relationships that happen when you're just sitting at the table for an hour and a half enjoying a long dinner at the end of a hard day it's um it's really fun and i, I will miss that for sure
0: i'm gonna miss it too it's uh been good to chat to you today and i want to say to everyone out there if they didn't hear the podcast before go back and listen to the first podcast i did with kevin but we have only just sort of touched on a few topics here you've got to go across and have a listen to Kevin's podcast he has his own podcast called The Podium which I frequently listen to and it's got everything we've talked about and a hell of a lot more in a lot more detail but very very easy to understand and comprehend um, Kevin do you want to say anything about your podcast there because I, I can't recommend it highly enough and I think a lot of people would get a lot out of it
1: I, I appreciate that Mitch um yeah. It's just, we, we try to take a single topic in each episode, uh, a single topic regarding health and performance and just dig deep into it. But like you said, we try to go deep in the science, but maintain a level of accessibility so that anyone can listen to it and, and get most, if not all of it, and hopefully come away with something actionable. So um, yeah, I'd welcome anybody to come listen to it. Uh, thanks for mentioning it, Mitch.
0: No problems guys. That's the podium. And Kev, good to speak to you mate i hope to see you in person soon and i hope we can go for one of those coffee rides we used to do all those years ago
1: for sure i'm planning on it still
0: i hope you enjoyed that episode i hope you found out something new there Like I said at the end of the episode, there, go across and have a listen to his podcast, The Podium. It's a very, very interesting podcast, and you can get a little bit more detail there. Life in the Peloton is going to have a little break while the Giro's on. This year, Life in the Peloton is not going to feature during the Grand Tours, just because the cycling podcast does such a great job of covering the Grand Tours. I thought I'm just going to stay out of that one and save up the good stuff for before and after. So I'll be back after the Giro. There'll be a talking loof next week. After the Giro, there'll be another Talking Luft and then I'll be back on the cycling podcast with a new Life in the Peloton episode. So guys, sit back and enjoy the grand tour coming up and until a few weeks time, I hope you can hang on. Until then, cheers. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley.
1: Thanks, mate.